0: Hello, you're very welcome to The Week That Really Was with John McGurk and Sarah Ryan. It was the week when the government survived a motion of no confidence in the Dáil by the relatively comfortable margin of 86 votes to 67 over the issue of the eviction ban, which we'll come back to in a few moments. It was the week of a, a yet another school shooting in the United States. And it was the week when a news talk host asked a question of one of Ireland's most famous Olympic stars and then found the question com- coming back to rather bite him in the backside um, we're going to discuss all of that. We're going to be joined in a moment or two by Carl Dieter, a financial anal- analyst, newspaper columnist, somebody who a lot of people will be familiar with if they ever watch TV shows and uh, they have seen him popping up on the regular to provide some common sense, which he's going to do for us in a few moments. But before all that, Sarah, how are you?
1: I'm good. Very good. Can't complain. It was an interesting week for people like us. Like I said to you earlier on, I think the worm is starting to turn on a number of issues, so I'm pretty pleased.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, we'll start by talking about um, what happened with Kelly Harrington, because I think that's fairly indicative. I think back to a couple of years ago, and I wrote about this this week, to um, John Connors, who people may remember as as an actor who, who happens to be a traveller, who, who shot to fame in Love, Hate, I think it was. Um, and he was everywhere. And then he expressed some views about... Um, Peter Tatchell's involvement with Roderick Borman, or the connection between the two men, which is fairly tenuous and what he said was fairly um, fruity. But nonetheless, he was challenged on it and he ended up having to do a groveling apology and he basically hasn't been heard from since. Even though uh, anecdotally at the time, I remember a lot of people seemed to agree with him. This week, with Kelly Harrington was different. She um, basically pushed back on the host said, you're, you're trying to set me up. There was an attempt in the media to create a scandal for a few hours, a few days. Um, and then all of a sudden, it ended this week with the host Shane Hannon having to apologise for his own rather fruity tweets of years gone past. So there really has been a change, I think, in how these these scandals happen and the public's willingness to fight back on them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was well. First of all, I'm sort of—he was quite young when he wrote wrote his tweets, so it was all a bit kind of silly. But you know, you 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 know, you live by the gun, you die by the gun, as they say. Um. I think that I I, I thought she was great. Like when he started to push it, she just wasn't having any of it. And Mm -hmm. she just kept pushing back and kept pushing back. And he was trying to, you know, like kind of still get the conversation going and, oh, I'm a journalist in the mouth, also asking questions, whatever. And she was just not having any of it. And I thought it was great. And I think, Ultimately, what it boils down to is that people and you can you could really see it really fast on Twitter and just anecdotally kind of talking to people that people just weren't interested in a cancellation of Kelly Harrington. They weren't interested in the cancellation over a tweet that she liked or retweeted however long ago about an issue that was particularly gruesome. And she felt a certain way about they're just not buying it anymore. And I think that's good. I think that's really good
0: i do too and i think it, one of the things that was interesting was that it, what happens sometimes in these media drive-bys is like oh you sent this tweet it was terrible the tweet that she liked or retweeted or whatever it was she did wasn't particularly egregious it was from Eva Vlardingbroek, who's a dutch journalist who's fairly regular and on, on, on gb news basically saying that this um, young girl who had been gruesomely murdered the details but gruesomely murdered had been killed by somebody who wasn't even supposed to be in France, and it was it was according to the journalist who sent the tweet the twelfth such murder uh, last year. Um, and Kelly, and Harington, not just a
1: young girl, a twelve a child, a child, twelve year old,
0: yeah, a child. It was the twelfth such murder in France last year, and Kelly Harrington basically said this isn't good enough, um, you know, and expressed what could be seen to be a, a a view that was skeptical on immigration, a view which I think is held. I mean. Polls in Ireland show 60% of people want some limit on immigration, right? So so, so it's not exactly the idea that there's scepticism of immigration isn't some kind of fringe outside the numbers of you. But I want to bring in Carl. Uh, I know, Carl, you're mainly here to talk about housing, but I'm sure you have views on this as well. It seems to me that there's all of this attempt in Ireland to create, um, I, again, I wrote up this this week and I said it's like the Test Act in the penal laws where you had to take a vow uh, of, fealty to the Anglican church to hold public office. In Ireland, there seems to be with with a, if you're any kind of celebrity or not somebody who talks professionally about politics like the three of us, you have to take this kind of vow of liberalism on every issue. Otherwise there will be an attempt to shut you up.
2: Yeah, I mean I, I kind of see it as being mandatory uh allegiance to the church of wokeology. And really what you saw this week was uh the, the standard doctrine and action. So, you know, the uh, wokeism is the religion, the journalists are the high priests, and they found someone who may have had an alleged violation. So when that happens, there's kind of a, I don't know, maybe like a 10-point plan. Um, there might not be 10 points in what I'm about to say, but just to, to say it, it broadly goes like this. You locate or create some kind of narrative violation. In this case, any comment around immigration that is anything other than, a fawning love and promotion of it. Then you point, after you isolate the person, you try to swarm on them and and recruit all your friends to do the same. You reject everything that they might say uh, for justification of their thinking and tell them they have to transform their entire persona. Uh, After that, you'll typically press for surrender, say that you need to apologize. Uh, You'll then appeal to some authority. You'll see politicians coming out saying, oh, how can you sponsor this person? oh women's boxing you should be ashamed yourself uh you have some kind of you know internet show trial and then you do a victory parade and move on to the next person i think that's more like eight steps but that's the broad entomology of how the church of oncology deals with uh the kind of apostate members who don't give them complete fawning allegiance that sounds Beautiful. fairly accurate yeah it's true too. I mean yeah.
1: t- although it also reminded me kind of to the but you see the, the person who they're rounding on has to be the wounded gazelle slightly on the Serengeti. And that what happened was they reminded me today and we saw Timmy Dooley writing tweets and then backtracking on them later in an interview that it reminded me of a snake who started to eat something that then realises that the animal they're eating is too big and then <laughs> is, has a horrible panicked moment where it realises that it might choke to death and starts trying to gag the whole thing back up. That's what reminded me of because... They underestimated how popular Kelly Harrington is, and that the public and the mood is just not for for this type of person being cancelled. And that was where yeah. it started. It was it was wonderful to watch really because it's like, yeah, okay, there there's loads of people who are cancelable and exactly, exactly the 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 way it plays out is exactly as you said, Carl. But this one was just a bit big to swallow and it failed and it was great.
0: I think the yeah, TV timid- not- sorry, go ahead, Carl.
2: Well, I was just going to say, yeah, I, I don't know. It, what's Timmy Dooley? Is he? He's beautiful, is he like beautiful like a editor. beautiful senator. senator. Oh, actually, you know what that is? I, I Actually, sorry. I do know who he is. It, he was the one who I saw saying, uh, how, is he the one who said, it's Spar, how can you sponsor? Or yes. Something to allude. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I didn't I didn't reply to that, but I remember looking at that and thinking how low and how badly yeah. opportunistic to take an Irish hero who put something on the internet and started to attack her livelihood when she's a woman yeah. in a very precarious industry where you literally have to fight for everything, she rose yeah. to the top towards the end of what would typically be a boxer's career in the first place. And the best mm-hmm. you can do is to tear her down. I mean, this is the thing about about what I would describe as the as the religion of wokeology, is is it actually has no moral compass? It's mm-hmm. completely devoid, apart from the lack of common sense. But you have to take your moral compass and throw it out the window and say that me giving this kind of virtue signaling is more important than the flesh and blood woman who, let's face it, when you look back at that interview, it was just kind of uh, you know, a minute or two of, of an interviewer pressing someone on something. They were like, look, you, I, I'm not really comfortable with where you're going for this. We're here to promote something. What are you talking about? Like, it wasn't some great moment in uh, in, in journalism history. It's actually just a kind of a, a crappy setup from a, a journalist who I think, did want to to push and, you know, be relevant. And, and from a professional boxer, it was like, look, well, I'm not going there. Like it, it really should never have manifested anything other than two minutes of, of low grade interview. That wasn't up to the the standard that people expect from such a, 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 a good, a good operation. as off the ball. Yeah. About it. And
1: it's a bit hard to take when it's politicians who would have been running to, you know, be photographed with her half an hour ago when it's suited. Do you know what I mean? And like, it's it's an it's an abandonment. Like the woke, the whole woke scene makes you yes abandon your moral compass, but also just like your your logic and your common sense. Like I I sometimes feel like people jump on these bandwagons that they haven't even read. He probably didn't even watch the interview. He probably doesn't even know what this is even about. It's just oh oh the, the you know the, the the burn the witch. Like they're rounding on someone. I'll get into this. This might get me some votes. You know it's really pathetic depressing as well yeah.
2: yeah that's where that's where the, the point and shriek and evoke the swarm is, is such a it's such a key part of this like if you often look at things that that drive people insane whether it's uh you know a rally where a woman wants to talk about the fact that she has certain beliefs about what it means to be a woman and that you know and you'll have other people then jumping up and down screaming this is sacrilegious you know heresy burn that person at the stake obviously i'm, I'm speaking in terms not Actuals, but just metaphorically. But that's the whole point of, or the For whole now, anyway. basis of the, the, the point and shriek and isolate the person and then swarm on them, like like that. Those are like known steps. They're the known steps in, I, I, what would you call it? like a ritual of occultology? Honestly, this thing is completely manifest the same way a cult religion would. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's. I I I wrote I've I this theory about Ireland that we're going through at the moment. Um the Reformation. We we didn't have the Reformation back in the 1530s when the rest of the UK had it because obviously it was English. Um, and we stuck to our Catholic faith, the succeeding 500 years became sort of integral to our identity. Then a hundred years ago, the uh, the English left or chased home or whatever the case may be. And and now we suddenly had this, what we're basically going through, it, it's very akin to the Reformation, um, both from the requirements that you adhere to what you described, Carl, as the new religion, to the um, to the suppression of the monasteries, the urge to shut down all the Catholic schools, to the rewriting of old um, scriptures and rules and redefining what it is to be a man or a woman, um, and the zealousness of it. There's a zealousness to it that you can only really associate with the kind of religious mania. I, I, I listen to some people um, you know th- this idea that words are violence for example which comes up on a whole range of areas hate speech laws the, the criminalization of dissent it's mm-hmm. all very akin to sort of um what cromwell and i mean thomas cromwell not oliver cromwell would have done for henry the eighth in terms of suppressing the old um faith and it's also got another parallel with the reformation which is that it's top down henry the eighth um imposed protestantism on the uk from the top down by you know, by the power of a very large establishment taking on a relatively powerless large majority. And it's very similar to what you see now, because all of this comes from a very small group in society. Like the 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 attitudes that I mean, uh-huh. I thought I was telling this week, I was like, was this piece by Ellen Coyne, which I didn't think was that egregious, but the tone of it was, you know, Kelly Harrington has an obligation to explain her views. Does she? Why? Why does she have an obligation to explain her views? She's not a politician, she's not a social commentator, she's a boxer she's entitled to hold views, same as anybody else, but she she's not in the business of, of having to explain them. But these people believe they have an entitlement to put somebody on trial simply for the crime of perhaps maybe disagreeing with them. And the only people who disagree with them are expected to explain their views. And I would contrast that with the example of, Gripbook broke a story a couple of months ago about a chap called Steel Wall, who's a, a singer, a very progressive guy. He was on the Late Late Show a couple of, of weeks ago Singing a song called um, "What Have We Forgotten" or something, which is basically how we're all <laughs> Irish people are—you are, know—have forgotten the, where they came from, and you know we shouldn't be racist, and you shouldn't be racist is the message of it. This guy—it um, just—I'm I, I, making no moral judgment, but it's a matter of fact that he has a conviction for manslaughter for killing another person in prison, and he's never been asked to explain that. He gets on RTV to to expound his views without ever being questioned about his past, whereas Kelly Harrington, who isn't pushing any political views in an interview, is being compelled to answer questions by the Irish Independent for something she tweeted last October. It's, it's, ve- it's very inquisition-y as well. Yeah. That, that whole sort of Middle Ages religious main <clears> period <throat> has big echoes to today, I think.
1: Yeah, and I think there's um, also that the, 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 it was the same. She's the media want her to be because of her personal life and they want her to be a champion of woke culture and they're kind of almost irritated when she's not do you Mm -hmm. know what i mean they want her to talk it was the same with katie um taylor katie taylor taylor is a is quite religious you know she's like has a strong faith she has um like faith plays a big part in her life and i always remember being really you know it's kind of almost inconvenient like why are you not you know why don't you have the exact views? Why aren't you, you know, a, a member of the church of wokeism like us? Because it'd be so much easier for us to 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 talk to you if you were. And it's like if you're a boxer, you're a football player, you're a rugby player whatever, you're you, you know, your your views on all of these should be irrelevant. But the thing is that we we just like I think that Ireland is going through a phase or or actually has always been this way. But it's just different now and that you're either with us or against us. You're either in the fold or you're not. And it's just, you know, maybe you're your you've been your professional career has allowed you to have some power. But it's a bit inconvenient to us that you're not agreeing with us on every woke issue, because then we can't really decide whether you're in the fold or not. Do you know you, what I mean? And it's up. always us and them.
0: You touched on a point yeah, there, on. Sarah, which I think is really important, um, but I just want to make it clear to people. Well, Kelly Harrington happens to be a lesbian. She's a working mm-hmm. class woman from the inner city. She is, um, in many ways, I think because she doesn't toe the line, it actually hurts these people more because yeah. they all believe in this um, intersectionality.
2: She, she's thing. a real poster girl for
0: yeah, she should be into their mind. She should be a poster girl for gender quotas and the promotion of feminism and all the rest of it. So when she doesn't toe the line, it offends them more because in their view, people are not so much individuals as they are some of their traits. Carl and I are, yeah. are middle class white blokes, therefore bad, regardless kind of what we think. Kelly Harrington is a lesbian inner city uh, boxer. I, 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 by the way, I don't care what her sexuality is, but I'm saying to these people, it's very, very important. And to their yeah. to their mind, she is somebody who should be in their corner. Anyway, we should we should yeah. move, we should move on. Sarah, what did you it, make? It of- is.
2: Can I just say one last thing on on the We're, point though? And I I think that one of the things that has to happen for for people in general, the Kelly Harringtons of the world, and just regular folks, it is you should never be afraid to have a conversation about something. I mean, I was on uh, RTU a while ago talking about immigration, and there was a lot of rage afterwards because I had simply spoken about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- there's this, like, triad of accusations. <clears throat> First one is, oh, you must be anti-immigrant. And I have to explain to people, I actually, am an immigrant myself. I'm very pro-immigration. Uh, I grew up around immigrants both as a child near in California, not too far from the Mexican border. I grew up as an immigrant in this country. Like, I really, I'm, that, that one doesn't stick. And they say, oh, well, in that case, then, you must be racist. I say, well, actually, the immigration I'm concerned about presently is 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 white people so same skin color like i don't see nationality as a race so and they'd say oh crike that's not going to work either okay you must be far right like there is basically a bingo ball machine of accusations and they tend to start with throwing the heaviest one at you and see if it breaks you and then they just keep on going until sheer volume does the job Mm -hmm. but you shouldn't let something like that put you off from voicing valid reasoned concerns like I don't have time for people to say oh, I hate foreign I don't yeah. I'm not into any of that you know you know, actual what you call like the true, true branches of racism disgusting horrible wrong but if you're saying that like a 1.5 percent increase in the population in a year fleeing from a war I think eth- ethically we have a responsibility to help those everyone who's in that situation yeah. but I, I think that expands to all countries not just Ireland but to also say to yourself you know, there's trade-offs that happen. There's things you, you should be validly concerned about and that it's not wrong to discuss those things. Mm. And it's report- also
1: the trick every time. That's the thing, that that when you talk about anything that's hard, whether it's immigration, whether it's abortion, whether it's anything else, that you spend you have to spend the first 15 minutes giving your credentials of why you're not what they say you are. And it's a great stick because it stops anybody from ever having to argue on the point. And it's done all the time. You're far right. Yeah. I mean, like, okay, i you're right-wing. I mean, the, like, one of the greatest switcher, trickeroos that's ever been done in Ireland is to make re- calling someone right-wing a slur. It's great. Then they never have to talk to you about anything. Oh, you're right-wing. All right, okay. Well, like, okay, but have a conversation with me about the issue. No, no, you're racist. You're racist. You hate women. You're the, like... I'm so bored of it, to be honest. It's a real... We're still in the infancy of being able to talk and debate. But we're just you, so
0: childish. You said at the beginning of this conversation, Sarah, you shift, sense a shift in the air. Do you think it's a broader shift or is it specific to Kelly Harrington? Or
1: No, I think people are getting braver about being honest. Um, I definitely think so. I think that people are starting, you, you know, you and I have talked about this before, John, you'd meet politicians, but you'd also just be at dinner parties or chatting to people or friends or whatever. And people would say, oh, well, I think this, but you can't say that. And I think this, but you can't say that. You can't be saying this and you can't be saying that. And there was a fear. I think that that's starting to soften a bit. I think people are getting a bit, you know, just bored and peed off with being patronised to and told what to think all the time. Mm. Um, and i think we're starting to see it. i'm not saying that the whole world is changing overnight but i just think that the the, the grip that the the woke and the, the woke karate of ireland and the media had on people's you know ability to talk out loud is loosening
0: definitely yeah i think so too for what it's worth anyway we said we would talk about other things as well so we will um one transition from kelly harrington to housing via the mechanism that makes housing relevant this week which is the the vote in the doll. The government won it by eighty-six votes to sixty-seven, a very comfortable margin in the end. Um, Sarah, what was your take on all of that? For me, the the the, the I ask you a question, now I give you my view. But I, my view is something I want you to respond to, which is, for me, the whole charade of a no-confidence vote was just that—it was a charade. Nobody wants an election. That's why I have all the independents who don't have confidence in the government vote confidence in the government anyway. Uh, Sinn Fein don't want an election because they don't have the candidates in place yet. Uh, the other parties don't have the money to fight one right now and Labour who called the motion of no confidence wouldn't have called it if they thought it would pass because they're probably going to lose half their seats if there is one Um, (laughs) but what was what was was your take on that and by the way the Labour Party conference was last weekend as well if you want to mention that oh
1: yeah like the Labour Party conference was uh, uh, I'll, uh, I'll get to that in a minute I thought I think you're right in the sense that it's a complete waste of time, and everybody knows it's a complete waste of time. I thought it w- the only person that it wasn't a waste of time on, and that it was particularly negative for was Nessa Horrigan because she just looked like a complete idiot, voting, losing the party whip, uh with the Greens, and then voting confidence in the government completely, just you know. Anyway, um, the Labour Party. I don't think they should have brought it in. I I, I noticed um that they they when they when they brought the motion of no confidence against the government they talked about how it was the first time they'd done so in many years i think they should have given it a few more years i think they were trying to get a media um i think it was pretty transparent that they wanted to get a kind of a media run for a week or two following on from their conference going into their no confidence motion and try and get some you know wind in their sails or whatever but i think that their conference was um boring um talking about inheritance tax and you know,
0: a million new houses, like
1: a million new. It's just like painful stuff, and oh, none of it. You know, I, I tweeted about it during the week. Like, you know, this is the guys that, like their their big their hot take last year or the year before was to cut to get To Kill a Mockingbird removed from the school syllabus because words hurt. I just think Labor are paddling mm-hmm. or drowning, and don't know. I I think they've. I've said it before. I think they made a mistake getting rid of. Alan Kelly, because I made that mistake the last time we discussed this, but um, I think they made a mistake changing leader. I don't think they're, they're getting any traction with the public. I think they're cannibalized in terms of they're looking for votes from the same pool that too many other parties are, and they have yet to come up with one policy that actually differentiates them in any significant way from any other party. And it's all a bit tired and dull and boring. And then the confidence motion was just a bit cynical. That's my view.
0: Yeah, it's a, a, fair, a fair view, I think. I thought, though, the most interesting political development this week didn't happen the doll at all on housing. The most interesting political development was a poll in, I think, the Sunday Business Post, I think it was the Sunday Business Post Red Sea poll, where they asked people their views on a whole range of issues, amongst them, the eviction ban. And they asked people if they favored the lifting of the eviction ban or not, and the results were that 46% of people opposed lifting it, so just short of a majority by the 4%, Thirty-six percent of the people, more than a third of the people in Ireland, were all in favour of lifting the eviction ban. Which I would suggest, if you were to listen to the Irish media's coverage of this issue and listen to conversations in the Dáil about it and watch this confidence vote and the Sinn Féin motion, you would swear that the public were opposed to lifting the eviction ban by a margin of something like ninety-six to four. It's yeah. it's, it's, it's 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 actually astonishing, and, and once again, it shows that the public, oftentimes, even when they're bombarded with a particular point of view can be a little bit truculent about embracing it. So, Carl, I wanted to ask you your view on the eviction ban. I think people can probably guess what mine is. But you, you, you work in the in the area of housing. I'll let you go and decide to go into how much detail but where you work yourself. But you work in that general area, housing, mortgages, finance. Um, in your view, uh, is the eviction ban good policy?
2: No, the, the eviction ban is really bad policy. Um, I think that uh, the fact it hasn't worked should be the first piece of evidence used, apart from the fact that we were told it wouldn't work. Uh, people said, you're just going to put off this problem and it'll create more evictions later, which it has done. So any, any anything that looks at this in an empirical manner or where evidence counts for anything at all, which usually in the policy world it ought to, so if you said we're going to invent a medicine, everyone who takes it dies, you'd stop calling it a medicine, you'd say this is a poison, so... Uh, it didn't achieve anything of what it was meant to do so it has failed there's a couple things as well when people say oh we support this most people are not affected by this so i mean most people are not renters and even of the renters not every renter is getting an eviction order so uh, and it's equally not an eviction ban because actually loads of evictions that supporters of the ban also believe in like frantic behavior so even the language around it is a bit tricky but people don't actually understand how it works because uh, I said this to to some of the young people in the, the tech company that I manage. <clears throat> they were saying, yeah, it's really disgraceful. I said, do you actually know how this works? And they're like, yeah, I was just kicking people out. I said, no, you've got to understand wh- what leads to this. And so I went to the effort of explaining. And afterwards, they were like, wow, you should do a video of that because like that's not what you ever read about. I said, of course you wouldn't read about it because there is no interest in someone giving you an objective way to understand this when it's so much better to slap up a great headline uh you know get some kind of hot take from uh you know a person who works in the grievance industry uh a politician and you know the 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 laptop classes go crazy and it's great rinse and repeat like there is a lot of reasons why landlords are leaving a market now and no one ever talks about why that is i mean isn't it weird that at a time of the highest house prices we've ever had and the peak rents that we've ever had, that people would choose then to get out, given that everything has never been better for them? Like that paradox alone should make you say, wow, well, is there something else at play here? Uh, and, and there are. So it, I, I would, with permission, like to, to explain what some of those issues are and what leads people to want out. Of course. Yes, okay. Please. Well, The first thing is that there is a structural horizon to what people do with their lives. So not everyone lives the same way, but often people tend to get educated in their late teens and into their early 20s. They tend to form households, you know, maybe in their late 20s, early 30s. And you you can, look, I'm not saying that everybody, and you can probably go five years either side of things and still find a good cohort, but, but there tends to be like, these structural horizons so when people buy property it is a medium to long-term investment which typically means you're kind of looking at 15 to 20 years now if you look back over time you see that the mortgage market uh back you know 2003 2004 10 percent of it was investors today it's only one percent so the people who got in 20 years ago they are naturally at a point where they need to get out a lot of these people have weathered some deep deep storms of falling rents of rates that rose of being a landlord during the years when the imf was here of having had to stay there during a crash because they couldn't get out uh and, and and that's something where they're saying wow I'm, I'm fed up with this and i want out you should never have a policy that forces people to stay at a table like i'm all in favor of people if you take a risk and you lose that's your loss like i really do believe that and if you gamble your problem your loss uh and equally if you win then fine but you should never force someone to have to stay in a trade. They don't want to be in. So that's the first thing is that it will be natural to see landlords who bought back at that time exiting. It's just, it's it's, a, it's like a conveyor belt. It starts mm-hmm. at one point, they get off the conveyor belt at another. The other most destructive thing we brought in, which is, is really not talked about enough is the rent controls of 2016 were so dysfunctional that, uh, when when Simon Coveney brought these in he connected these rent controls to the house which is a really weird way of doing it and, and I for instance know as someone who by the way disclosure I am a landlord I work in property you know all the usual stuff but that's actually why I get asked about this stuff is because of my um, lived experience um, you could be giving rent that was really good to somebody who you'd see as a kind of preferential tenants older women who are on their own things like that like you know in their 70s But now, if someone else bought the property, they had to give them that rent too. And and that meant that it actually set a price on a property that could be well below the market. And by connecting it to the house, uh, it it meant that you could never, there was never a a way to get what you would call rectification. Because Mm -hmm. by tying it to the house, even if that tenant left, the next tenant who came in got it at the same price as the previous tenant. Mm-hmm. So they they intentionally removed a um, a remedy for 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 rectifying the problem. So it'd be like saying to someone look your wage for a job gets set in 2003 and no matter what happens you know it can never catch up. You know uh, like if housing was run by unions this never would have happened because they would have spotted the inherent unfairness of it uh, to begin with. know they would have said look that's 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 a a real weird way of doing it because now you've got a situation where you can have two houses next door uh one person is uh goes to rent it today and it costs 2500 and someone goes to rent the one that just recently became vacant next door that had previously been rented and it's almost an identical house and that one might cost 1500 because that one is has a rent control in place And when you're looking at that, when you're looking at the double taxation or the fact that you weren't able to offset property tax, if you look at an environment of rising rates and when you may have gotten back into positive equity, most houses are at this stage. uh, So you might be able to actually, you know, sell a property pay tax bill if you have it and maybe lower your own taxes. Like these are things that make people want to get out. Like I'm, I'm looking at my own situation and because I, Again, have a situation, have a place where the the, the rent control is particularly uh, against me. I basically pay a mortgage, uh, which now the rent and the mortgage are the same. Um, and that's before I look at property tax, maintenance, insurance, upkeep, keep. And then there's a tax bill in, in there as well, which gets stacked on top. So I'm about 600 euro a month off worse and I actually don't see it as my duty, as a father and and and, and breadwinner of my house, to outsource welfare to the state. Like so, like either the tenant should pay or the state should pay. That's what uh, your welfare system is for. I don't see it being my obligation to stay in that. So I think you know I'll probably leave too. And, and the decision is well founded because of the way the policy works. Had they not made policies that drove people to it to being painted into a corner, they wouldn't be leaving in these numbers. But it was driven there by a certain type of um, very vocal ideology that would, would jump up and down and clap at these minor victories that had big ramifications further on. But as long as you won on day one and you were seen to be thinking or doing the right thing, that actually mattered more than the empirical and real results that came about as a result of it. Rent pressure zones were the most destructive thing ever imposed on this country. It was bad policy, badly thought out. The way it was executed was wrong. The way it's being maintained is wrong. But now we're at a point where it's too late. So they're saying, oh, look, on one hand, let's set somebody on fire. And in the other, let's spray them with a fire extinguisher. You know, we, we have this terrible situation, but now we're going to make these things to, to try and make you stay to woo them back into the market. But that would equally be a mistake, because if you haven't left at this stage, chances are you weren't leaving anyway. So we'll actually be giving benefits to people who don't need them in order to once again be seen to do the right thing. But the right thing should, in any civil society, have some objective understanding of merit or outcome. And we never do that. No one ever says, is that actually the right thing? If this doesn't achieve the result we, we, we wanted? Should we get rid of it? The, know, the, the, it's never the, done. The thing about me, that all, the thing for,
0: for me about all this is that not only is it the policy problems which you outlined there very capably, not only are they they real, but the politics of it is astonishing. I mean, there is not one person I would wager in the country who, in 2016, thought that rent controls were a good idea and should be introduced, who saw them be introduced in 2016, who is now today saying I'm going to vote Finnegay. The people who advocated this policy. Uh, and the people to whom the government bent over to deliver it are not the government's own supporters. And when I talk, as I do, not as frequently as as, as some people, but I do talk to government backbenchers in Pianna Fáil and Fine Gael in particular, and they will tell you that rent controls are bad policy and that that the, the uh, eviction ban was bad policy. But they felt they had to do it. And my question is why? Because the voters who want those things to happen ain't voting for them anyway, Sarah. They're they're voting for. Um, parties of the left who've been allowed to set immigration policy even though they're, sorry, immigration housing policy, even though they're in opposition. Um, and and as their policies have failed, the normal democratic mechanism when a policy fails is that the people who implement it suffer at the next election and somebody comes in and rectifies it. But we're in this bizarre situation in, in this country where we have housing policy that's essentially been set by the people out of power who say it hasn't worked because it hasn't been done hard enough effectively. And the solution is to vote out the government and elect people who will um, if we take the trajectory of housing policy thus far make it worse so for me it's it's a matter of political incompetence as well as policy incompetence
1: yeah i mean i, mean, I think that like it's it, uh, housing there's a number of like hot topics in ireland or when they're hot topics politically and they always seem like they're always made seem in the media and stuff like they affect a lot more people than they do and I think that you're absolutely right in what you say and that the majority of the people who are directly affected by this weren't voting for Fianna Gale anyway. But at the same time, I think that like Carl put it really well and it's like you're making. So take the rent controls, for example, there's all of these moving parts, moving parts and you pull one lever and it affects another lever down the road and and all of this mess and. And we don't have enough thinking about long term implications because our political system is set up for short term gain, like electorally, you know, everything is like short term, short term, short term. And nobody ever calls people to account later when things don't work out. I mean, in terms of the rent control, I just find that kind of. Another thing, by the way, as well, that I was going to say, as Carl, Carl mentioned it as well, is that what we're led to believe by the media and the narrative around this is that all landlords are big, huge, scary, you know, uh, like uh, vulture funds. And, and and you know, that, there, that there's never enough talk about the smaller landlord. I know lots of people who, because of an inheritance or because of a pension plan or for a variety of reasons might own a second property and they get nailed on taxation. They get nailed here, they get nailed there. And they're always... Made out to be these kind of villains and you know much larger operators than they actually are and if you're talked about in the media all the time and you're taxed and you're punished for being a landlord all the time the natural consequence of that is eventually you're just going to go you know what why would you be bothered and they sell up and that has the effect of of, of what we're seeing um i had a question actually for carl in that is it the case then like if rent controls and some of these things were just lifted just there's a new government tomorrow and they just abolish all of these things then on an individual basis landlords is is the fear that landlords then just to in- immediately in- increase the the rent on the property that was 1500 a month up until now like well, what would be the first What i suppose my question is like you're a person who lives this who understands this you're not politically um motivated so if you were in charge tomorrow what's the first thing you would do like just as a matter of interest, it's not a, it's not a, you know, I'm just curious, like what's the, what's yeah, the well, fastest way to some kind of solution here?
2: Yeah. So I, I think that if you were to say tomorrow, all bets are off, that you, you, you would, that would probably be like for the, the the, the kind of the, the profound libertarians say, yeah, let that do it. It'll all sort itself out. And the truth is in time it would, but the initial shock would be pretty, pretty rough and probably hit a lot of people in a very brutal way. Um, I, I, think that you've got to give people like, you've got people making 50% below market rates. Like they, 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 don't even have a way to get to like 80% because they're tied in to, you know, oh, it was a maximum of 4% and the rest of the rents were going up by, you know, 20%. And then, uh, and now it's like kind of 2% and and also when you've got like rampant inflation, so it's become really impossible to even get a fair deal. And I think most people in life want to have a fair, a fair, you know, squeeze of the the orange, or water. I don't even know what the no. expression is, but they want to have like a fair shot, right. and that's not happening. Wow. So um, yeah. you have to have something that allows we people to regain some house. of the lost ground. Uh, oh. But equally, if you wanted to look at doing something that would ramp up no, the anyway. availability of housing. I- the availability of housing being the number one thing that can make a difference you would have to say we need some way to speed up the uh the capacity to deliver housing and that's i was talking to somebody the other day and i said you know instead of having a right to housing why don't we have a right to build like that would actually have a a, a greater and deeper effect on housing provision than this conceptual right to a house say whatever about your right to a house give people the right to build build a house or, or build something if you own the land. And that was like, it's looking at the same problem, but just looking at it from the other side of it, saying like, you know, you there don't are, have to see something through the lens of why we're told to think about things. There is one prominent politician in
0: Dublin who uh, has uh, objected in the last year and a half, I think, to over a thousand houses in his own constituency, objected to their construction. Would you say there, somebody who, who grew up in a rural area and lives in a rural area about planning, Carl, just rings home so true um, to me. It's almost impossible now to get planning permission um, in Ireland if you want to build your own house. And developers, I know some people will say developers are sitting on a lot of pre-approved plannings, and they are because there's also a shortage of staff, shortage of builders, a shortage of. I know, I'm aware of one estate, for example, where somebody who I know, somebody quite close to me, has bought a house in a place, paid for it a year ago, and it's still not finished because they can't get anyone to connect the water and electricity. There's a huge backlog in in, in staff. Um and, and with planning, there's just this um for people who want to build their own houses and uh, who of course are to be welcomed because they're opting out of the system, they're taking pressure off the state, they're um they're 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 looking after themselves. Um it's almost impossible to get to get planning permission um even even if you're from an area. So there's a there's a huge supply bottlenecks there, which made me want to ask you, how realistic did you think Ivana Batchik's million new houses a year was? Because to me, we're building sorry. Be fair to advantage it's not a million new houses a year it's a million new houses over five years which i think equates to about 200 a year when we're building twenty nine thousand at the moment i mean to me it was just fantasies though
2: but yeah um, that number is so incredible that it literally makes me question the sanity of anyone who believes they can stand over that number that number is so <laughs> ridiculous that it, it doesn't even belong in a fairy tale because it would it would mean that the fairy tale lacks the vital elements to make you even want to follow the story for the fact that it wouldn't even have an ending worth you know relating to that is made up shit it's a lie it's a falsehood i think the figures where anglo used to pull the numbers out of their arse are more accurate and it has no business in serious discourse about the housing market in ireland well having
1: what why not a billion like why not a billion (laughs)
0: Well, you know, I think yeah. it's just great to have a guest who gives straight answers. So thanks, Carl, for that. <laughs> um, and, and last point on the on on the housing thing, I
2: wanted to ask you about is, but, is can, can I, look- I just can I, I I do need to, by the way, qualify that because I know that I just had it had a, a big pop at her number. Um, so let's just be clear: there is no agreed number of of how many houses we need a year, but of the of what I would call the credible numbers, which you know tend to be somewhere between say twenty five thousand to fifty five and sixty thousand. What you're talking about when you look at the difference in those numbers can be like the complete housing stock of all of County Louth or the complete housing stock of all of County Wexford or, sorry, Waterford. Like you're talking like differences in annual figures or what we're being told we need of like 30,000 homes, which is an entire county supply of homes, depending on the county that you look at. So this idea that we even know what we need is completely shambolic. And the number gets revised, and everybody says, Oh, we've got a better idea of why it's this number, it's that number. We thought about it. Great. Nobody, they, they can't be that far apart and everyone be right. So when someone comes in and just bigfoots all numbers by dropping a million on it, it's effectively the economic equivalent in housing of Dr. Evil saying one billion dollars. And then someone else says, I mean, you know, a million dollars. So or like or starting, no, I'm sorry, I got that backwards, but you get the analogy.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It is just so lacking in credibility that the only thing it was there for was to grab a headline. But well, one of the
0: things I wanted to talk to you about um, was uh, the demand, the demand side of this equation. Because there are a couple of things that strike me about, about housing in Ireland. The first is, is that we live in an era where housing has become a much more secure invest, investment um, proposition for big financial institutions than. Keeping their money in government bonds is, or keeping their money in 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 other sort of low risk investments, um, which is one of the reasons why you see all this money from sort of German firemen's pensions flowing into Ireland to buy apartments, um, or or other big international investment funds coming in to compete with Irish buyers to buy uh, our housing stock and put it on the market um, as, are basically to set it up as an investment for them and their their people they serve who are. German firemen or German teachers or Italian doctors, wherever it is that the fund is for. And those people, uh, because pension funds tend to operate in cash and large amounts of it, they are not constrained in what they can spend. Whereas an Irish person, if Sarah or I or you, Carlin, to buy a house, the central bank has put a limit on the amount we can borrow. Um, so Irish buyers are immediately at a competitive disadvantage in the housing market because of the central bank's borrowing rules and the fact that we live in a single market where investment funds can buy up Irish housing stock. That's the first issue. And the second thing is, this business of housing is an investment um, in and of itself. There's something driving that, because it's a relatively new development over the last 20, 30 years. In the 1980s, 1970s, you didn't have big financial funds pouring all their money into housing. Uh, And I read a really interesting piece uh, last week by just some random guy with a blog who was suggesting that... um, Basically, the, the the floating value of money and low interest rates has encouraged this dramatic inflation of house pricing and the flow of, flow of money into housing as an investment. Um, and then finally, you have the immigration issue, which is the thing that you can't talk about in relation to Irish housing. Which is, it doesn't matter how many houses you build, if you keep bringing in new people to live in those houses, you're you're playing it. You're basically trying to run up a hill of water, which is that you never get to the top because the demand will keep expanding to fit the supply. So I'm, I'm just wondering, is there anything that could be done on the demand side? Are there any restrictions that could be put in place, for example, on international funds coming in and buying up Irish housing? Uh, is there a place for discussion on control and immigration to, to get the housing housing market back under control? Is there anything yeah. to be done on the demand
2: side? Well, there, there was a a growing movement to say that we shouldn't have the ability for, you know, funds or companies or anyone else to come in and say, buy like a whole housing estate of houses and that really kicked off I think a uh, year before last with the housing estate in Maynooth where someone came in and bought them all and it was seen as a really terrible thing but I would remind people that renters need homes too and renters are real people and they're flesh and blood just like everybody else so the the, the financialization of housing you know in a way it's always been with us so I mean like but it wasn't always done in the way it's being done today. So if you look at places that would have, say, quite successful social housing models, there's a thing called the Vienna model, which is based on uh, on Vienna, and they started doing this stuff back in the late 1800s. And they charged—it's a kind of social, affordable housing—but they charged you know, really market appropriate rents, and they were able to reinvest. We don't do that now. Your average rent in, say, a council house at the moment is—you know, in Dublin—is around sixty euro a week, and the way that the rents are calculated is really like you could in theory be earning 100 grand a year and paying about 450 uh you know or so a month in rent because of the way that dublin city council will calculate your your uh your, your rent like we have managed to to turn social housing into a windfall so that once you get it you have it for life and you never ask to move on and at the moment we've got ten thousand or more free rooms in council homes and and state owned homes which is is like having empty hospital beds during a you know a a pandemic and saying oh that's okay I don't believe it is we're all part of this country we all have a stake in it and but you can't ask people to move house and because the rent is based on the individual not on the property uh it actually means that you quite often end up with one person living in a a three-bed house you know even four-bed house in one instance I think even a five-bed house I saw when I was looking through the statistics on it now the central banks created the zero interest rate policies that drove markets mad over the last kind of 10 years and created this great reflation where the laws of finance were all thrown into the air because you never really had a time in history where bonds rose in value stocks rose in value real estate rose in value you know every single everything rose in value from you know uh a, a house in in a rural area to some shit coin that just got launched on the crypto exchange based on the fact that it's named after a rapper who knows so central banks both created this problem and then wrote out rules on the other side to tell regular people because the zero interest rate policy really helps the big money and and things like quantitative easing you know even bank of england accepted that that actually made rich people richer which i don't have any problem with anyone getting rich but I don't like policies that are directed towards taking certain groups and ensuring that they have higher success that's the whole kind of fairness bit that I think Mm -hmm. needs to be needs to be looked at and then at the same time they're saying well we won't let someone you know borrow too much when in fact you know despite the fact that we say people borrowed too much during the financial crisis the vast majority of people kept their homes the vast Mm -hmm. majority of people are in equity today Because it's not like when you buy a house, you're just going to say, oh, you know, I'm going to go live in a cardboard box now. Like, you'd only do that if you had to. Most people, they found other ways, ran out a lot of policies to stop people from getting kicked out. But homeownership is one of the key routes to getting wealth. And when you start to lock generations out of it in favor of supporting generations who, say, the German fund are really there, usually to say to support pensioners who are at the other end of their life who already hold a lot of the assets, You get this kind of intergenerational inequality and it's a real tough pill for young people to swallow because it should be it's it's really really long like i believe as a parent that i want my kids to have a better life than i had and i i I i think that the the assumed uh continuance of that trend is starting to falter and i find that a really really worrying thing and then you've got you've got you know the official organizations, such as central banks, who create an environment that, on one hand, drives asset prices mad, but on another, stops regular people from participating the way a billionaire could, mm-hmm. and you know, creating different rules, creating situations that that give you this clear view of how tilted the table has become. And then you know, you pour in a, a rise in, in immigration, which can be happening because your economy is doing well, which is part of what Ireland does does, does well, uh, and that's really wonderful. And, and we're trying to help as many people as we can who are fleeing from what I consider to be a very illegitimate war uh you know a, a terrible situation but we won't even start to think about the impact. So I mean if, if the population rose by 1.5 percent, you know even just without anything, that would be like a big demographic concern. We'd be saying, wow, you know th- th- this is really gonna put strain on the system for schools and everything else. The 1.5% who arrived though are quite often divisible household units of adults. And you know, most of them will leave, usually when people flee a war, most of them want to go back home. But, you know, a lot won't. Um and so we have to have a structural think about like what how do we how do we get this right? Because if you want to do even if you even if you'd say like, all, all, all immigration is good to the point of no return, I don't think anyone truly believes that, but but if you did, you'd still say, well, If that is the case, we don't want people to to come here and be like terrible situations. So how do we start to accommodate for all of those concerns, knowing that we also have a lot of people who need a house, knowing that we also have, you know, very high numbers of homelessness, really high rents, you know, problems with delivery, problems with, uh, you know, labor market constraints, material Mm -hmm. constraints. It's kind of an impossible soup, you know, so I just... I I, <laughs> I want to be an
0: optimist, but it's not easy. No, it, it's not. Sarah, before we wrap up, I think you wanted to ask about tracker mortgages, or did you just want to do the joke, but not knowing which one is, what one is?
1: <laughs> no, I know very very well now what a tracker mortgage is. Unfortunately, um, Carl, uh, if one had a tracker mortgage, would would you advise one to get out of it?
2: Yeah. So. The thing is, at the moment, the, the kind of the window for jumping off trackers has passed, and to be honest with you, it kind of passed. And towards towards September of last year, ish, was the time to to hit like the final boat left. There's a couple of things. If you've got a tracker, your mortgage predates 2008, and you know, so you're, you're at least probably 15 years into a repayment situation. Hopefully, unless the person who's yeah. asking me a question is like on interest only. So you should have some good equity built up. You know you should be able to afford it. If you took your mortgage out in, say, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, you were paying the, on a higher amount, the same rate that you're paying today, and also after fifteen years, people typically have much higher wages than they did, uh, you know, fifteen years ago. So your wealth should be improved, your equity should be improved, your capacity to repay it should be improved, and you after coming off uh, a decade of of damn near zero rates so i think a lot of people when they're like oh my god my rate's going up yeah it can be frustrating um you know personally i I, like and properties that i have with it i have a tracker i'm just going to write out the rates um and that's a choice that i made but it also means that if i do find a way to make some extra money that i can also pay down those mortgages quicker
1: yeah
2: um you know, there's people say, oh, well, I was so wise last year. I got like this 1.95% mortgage. But equally, you know, we could see contraction in the market soon enough. There's a lot of problems in European economies. They could start marching down again. And I don't necessarily know that they'll go to zero, but they could get back into the zone of being pretty affordable. And then people who who got through a year or two of, you know, or three years of, say, a good fixed rate, and when they come off the rates available to them might not be so good but your tracker might be below it at that point and so you you know it's this unknown trade-off and and that's the thing yeah. is you see when you get with the tracker it is gone forever whereas if you ride it out yeah you might not have it have it great but it is kind of a a a, a pro cyclical type rate. so when it rises, you should in theory be doing better. And when it falls, it's usually because the economy is trash and so your mortgage payment goes down. So I uh I I I am actually a fan of variable rates, you know, where where they have this fixed margin guarantee. It's it's just it's not nice when they're going up, but you didn't hear anyone getting concerned when they were dropping all the way down to you know one percent either. So yeah. it's uh, uh and of course
0: if you jump off your tracker now, you're presumably yeah. locking yourself into uh, they probably offer you a big straight thing for four or five years. And you're locking yourself into a higher rate anyway. Yeah. And yeah. So yeah. Anyway. anyway, look, we we have talked a lot. We've covered a lot of ground. Carl, thank you very much for being on the show with us this week. Um, yeah, it was, was a really great. interesting conversation. Uh, we're delighted to have yeah, you. Thanks um me. We will be back, Sarah and I, next week with, um, I think, another guest. But we'll confirm that uh, when you tune in next week for the week that really was. Thanks very much everybody. Bye bye.